Welcome to Har for Chabad podcast, a project of the Klein Jewish Academy. In this podcast, we take ancient Jewish wisdom and make it relevant. Each podcast includes insights culled from Jewish traditions and ideas and helps give practical ideas on how to incorporate them into your daily life. Okay, so let's get started. Um, on Sunday... Sunday is the third day of the month of Tammuz. Uh, this is a uh, a day that's commemorated by Hasidim uh, because it marks the passing of the the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe. So on this day, a lot of people reflect about the Rebbe's legacy and the the fact that his legacy lives on. Uh, it's been many years, <laughs> you know, a couple decades at least, uh, since the pa- his passing, but uh, the, the, the movement uh, continues to, to flourish. Which I think is very interesting because I don't know how many movements flourish without a live Leader. Well, especially um, I, I when you're you're talking about uh, yes, uh, centering around a charismatic leader. The charismatic leader is gone, and there's no replacement. And I I do find it very interesting the way we're talking. I do know what I'm about, <laughs> but I find Being it recorded. Too. I find it very interesting the way. They keep him so alive in like the future generations who have never seen him or met him, but via you know his videos and his speeches and his talks and all this stuff, he is like so alive to those youngsters. Mm-hmm. It's really amazing. Yeah. I think other groups should model themselves. Try to emulate that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, and and we're gonna talk a little about about, you know, what made the Rebbe so unique? You know, there have been numerous leaders, you know, throughout history. Here we're talking about, you know, 3,000 years of history. We've got plenty of uh, leaders that we see. And, you know, many possess that charisma, scholarship, but few have reached the Rebbe's level. So in this class, we're going to learn about a story in this week's Torah portion and see the Rebbe's unique perspective. Uh, this will highlight uh, the Rebbe's out-of-the-box out the way, shall we say, of looking at things, and in this case, looking at the value and potential of another Jew. Um, and you know this will will showcase his his uh, revolutionary sometimes leadership. So we're talking about the rebellion of Korach. Uh, we'll talk. Uh, we'll give you a summary of that in a second. First, a joke, actually. Oh. A certain Magid. Uh, Magid is a roving preacher. Uh, he had only one good speech in his repertoire, a uh, fiery sermon on the Torah portion of Korach, as it were. 
as it is. Uh, he's traveled from town to town, was asked to deliver the, the week's sermon. He had to always come up with a clever ploy to cover up his, uh, well, as they put it here, his monotora deficiency. Rising to the pulpit, he would look at the crowd and all of a sudden feign a look of utter horror on his face. Oi, I prepared an elaborate sermon and I am deeply shamed to say that I completely forgot it. I wish the earth would swallow me alive right here and now as it did the Korach and his assembly. Speaking of Korach, I do have something I would like to share. So what is this uh, portion, Torah portion? Uh, we have the poor Parsha overview on the slide here. Um, well, let me uh, give you some more insight. Korach was uh, Moses' first cousin, and he's the one who uh, staged a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Together with a few other ringleaders, he gathers 250 men of renown and accuses Moses and Aaron of basically power hoarding. <laughs> you know, he, his claim was the, the entire congregation is holding gods in their midst. So why don't why do you raise yourselves above God's assembly? And he has a specific issue with the appointment of Aaron as the high priest. So Moses proposes that on the following day they participate in a test that will determine who indeed is worthy of the mantle of high priest. Everyone would bring an incense offering to the tabernacle, and God would make the decision. He would show who his choice is for high priest by accepting his incense, you know, whoever it was. For others, it's death, certain death. And they know this because we just had. Aaron's sons fairly recently before this uh, were killed by offering, doing an offering that wasn't pro, pro, prescribed by God. So Moses tries to go over to Korach's group and attempts to dissuade them from participating in this test because he knows that it's basically uh, suicide, but to no avail. The next day, the rebellion, they have the test. A fire consumes all those who foolishly offered incense, and the earth opens up and swallows those who remained, including Korach and his family. Now, Korach's sons uh, repented, I guess, at the last minute, and so they were saved. And as a matter of fact, you, you can see some of the Psalms in the Book of Psalms are ascribed to Korach's sons. Moses instructs Aaron's son, Eleazar, to retrieve the frying pans, the incense pans, which were used 
uh, you know, used for the offering, flattening them out and covering the altar with them. So a visible deterrent for anybody else who ever wants to challenge Aaron's priesthood. Now on the surface, it certainly looks like this is just a case of uh, jealousy. You know, uh, Korach and his crew wanted the leadership positions of the priesthood and I just did not succeed. Uh, but what is it that you know motivated Korach to begin with? If Korach had it in for Moses at, at the at the, the entire time, you know what happened just then? What was the straw that broke the camel's back <laughs> that that compelled him to go uh, and rebel? was their specific event that uh, caused this. And that brings us to text one. I'll do that one. And Korach took, this event took place in the desert when the role of the firstborn was revoked and given to the Levites. Korach and his cohorts assumed that Moses did this on his own accord that this wasn't God's will, as it were. He just handed out positions, plum positions to the family of Kehot, who was his closest kin, and to all the Levites in general, who were his family. The Levites rose up against him because they were slated to be under the authority of Aaron and his sons. Dathan and Abiram rebelled because Moses took away the rights of the firstborn from their father Reuben and gave them to Joseph. Perhaps they suspected that Moses did that for the sake of Joshua, his servant, who was from the house of Joseph. Also, Korach was a firstborn, for thus was written, the heads of the congregation as well were firstborns. Thus, they attempted to offer sacrifices and incense. The original plan, if, as you might remember, was for the firstborn to assume the role of serving in the temple. After the sin of the golden calf, when all, everyone sinned except for the Levites, uh, that privilege was granted to the Levites instead. We had that when they took the census, they, they uh, the Levites have to come and actually hug and pick up the firstborn. That was them acquiring the role as priests in the temple. It's picking up something or pulling something towards you as an act of acquisition. Now, witnessing the re rearrangement of the privileged roles, Korach assumed that it was Moses simply handing out those cushy jobs to family members, and so he was upset, and he fomented a revolution. And that would also explain why uh, Dason and Avaram were so keen in joining this rebellion, because they were personally burned by this rearrangement, because they were descended from the, the firstborn of the, the tribe. 
Uh, Nachmanides uh, takes a different uh, approach to this. And did that one? Mm -hmm. Korah took Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra wrote, this event took place in the Sinai Desert. Korah was the firstborn as well. In this, Rabbi Abraham follows his view that the Torah was written without regard to chronological order. However, I wrote that in my opinion, the entire Torah is written in chronological order, except for the places in which scripture notes explicitly that it is out of order. In those places, it is because of a certain need or suitable reason. Consequently, the correct explanation here is that this event occurred in the Paran Desert at the at Kadesh Barnea mm -hmm. after the incident of the spies. Okay. Oh, just... Okay. So Nachmanides, Ramban, uh, argues with Ibn Ezra because his entire explanation, Ibn Ezra, rests on the idea that Korak's rebellion is just after the sin of the golden calf, which is not how it appears in the Torah. Uh, this doesn't present any problem in Ibn Ezra's interpretation because he's of the opinion that the Torah doesn't follow any chronological order. Um, Nachmanides counters that what really angered Korach was that he was entitled to the position that Moses gave to someone else, Elitzafah. And that's in the next text. So Korach was angry about the appointment of Elitzafah to leadership. He was also envious of Aaron. Uh, the reason Dathan and Abiram joined with Korach was not because Moses took away the right of the firstborn from the tribe of Reuben, for it was actually their forefather, Jacob, who took it away from Reuben and gave it to Joseph. Rather, they stated their complaint to kill us in the desert, and even into a land flowing from milk and honey you have not brought us. As long as the Jews were in the desert, no bad event occurred, for even the very severe sin of the golden calf resulted in very, relatively few deaths. The rest of the people were saved through Moses' prayers, which lasted 40 days and 40 nights. Consequently, the nation loved Moses with all their soul and obeyed, them, obeyed him. If someone would have rebelled at that time, he would have been stoned by the people. What about the people who were swallowed up by the earth? Yeah, but again... And the group of people, wait a minute, and the group of people that were consumed by fire, because they were, weren't they complaining? Yes, yeah, we'll, we'll get okay. to those. But uh, again, when you're talking about millions of people, it's a relatively small amount. Yeah, I mean, we're known for being a stiff necked people. And, uh, you know, we start complaining. We worship a, <laughs> a golden calf, you know. Uh, a little over a month after we actually heard God give mm -hmm. us the yeah. Ten Commandments. Yeah, 
Therefore, Korach bided his time and refrained from reacting to Aaron's appointment as the uh, high priest, Kohen Kadol. Uh, in, in the same way, the firstborns refrained from reacting to the elevation of the Levites and all of Moses' actions. However, when they arrived at the Paran Desert, many were burnt at Tevera and died at Kibrat Hatava. Um, yeah, at, at Tevera, that was the complained and you know God sent down fire as you say some were burnt and the Kibras Hatova is where they complained about the lack of meat and also when they sinned with the spies Moses did not succeed in annulling the decree with his prayer and the leaders of the tribes died in a plague before Hashem it was decreed upon the entire people to die in the wilderness as a result, the people were embittered and they began to feel that all their failures came as a result of Moses' leadership. Korach saw his opportunity now to dispute with Moses and he reasoned the people would listen to him. This then is the reason why the dispute appears here after the incident with the spies. Regardless if we choose to follow Ramban or Ibn Ezra, it still sounds like people think it's just a case of jealousy. Yeah, Korak dis disagreed with the way Moses was running things. Uh, may have felt that he was uh, he was botching uh, the project management of uh, taking the Jews through the. Uh, to the, the promised land up or uh, just, you know, uh, doing, uh, giving out favors to uh, those who he favored more. But regardless, it's, it sounds like it's jealousy. There's a problem with this. The, the, the name of our Torah portion, our Parsha, is called Korach. If the above is true, if, if we're talking about just jealousy here and we're making Korach out to be such a bad guy, why would we name an entire Torah portion after him? You know, okay, uh, you might say that's, okay, he's the, uh, the major protagonist <laughs> of the story. But there's a rule in, uh, given in the Talmud, and that is in text three. What is the meaning of the verse? But the name of the wicked shall rot. Rabbi Eliezer said, this means that the K will spread on their names, meaning that we do not call others by their names. So we're not supposed to mention the name of these wicked people. So it doesn't make sense to name an entire Torah portion after that bad guy. So why did we do it? Why was it done, rather? And there are more questions. You know, we, we said, you know, when Moses test, uh, set up the test, people were fully aware that 
Well, first of all, only one person could be the high priest. And that they saw by Aaron's son's deaths that, you know, if you do things that are different than what God said, there could be mortal consequences. You know, were these 250 people who want to offer the incense, what were they thinking, you know? Only one of them was going to be that person. Why would they risk their own lives just at the remote shot that they're going to be the one? And in fact, Moses did tell them that they're playing with fire here, literally. So, so anyway, so the, you know, we're, we're, we're figuring out, as it says on the slide, what was Korach's redeeming quality that we would have a, a, a portion, a Torah portion named after him. And so we go on. Uh, yeah, if you could do text four. Sure. Okay. Just a different voice. Do this. Take censors, Korah and all of his company. What was his reason for saying this to them? He said to them, in the religions of the nations, there are many laws, and they do not all assemble in one house. Now, as for us, we only have one God, one Torah, one justice, one altar, and one high priest. But you, 250 men, are yet all seeking high priesthood. I am willing in this regard. Therefore, you and all of your company have come together against God. Do this. Take censers and place fire in them. Here you have a service more precious than all the others. But is the incense the most precious of the sacrifices? But a deadly poison has been put out with it through which Nadab and Abihu were burned. He therefore warned them. Then it shall come to pass that the man whom God chooses is the Holy One. Do we not know that the one whom God chooses is the Holy One? Rather, Moses said to them, see, I'm telling you that you are not to incur guilt on your 250 souls, because when you sacrifice, only the one to be chosen from among you shall come out alive, and all the rest of you shall perish. You Levites have gone too far. See, I have told you a great thing. Were they not fools in that when he gave them this warning, they took it upon themselves to offer sacrifice? They had sinned against their own lives. So they were warned. They were warned by Moses. And uh, we can imagine that uh, Moses did not go alone into their camp to warn them about this. Um, again, uh, in halakha and in Jewish law, uh, you can't be condemned to, uh, to death unless there were, you know, two people who would have warned you. So this is probably part of that, that 
Moses and others came and, and warned them. And so why did they go ahead with it? Yeah, did they not believe Moses when he warned, warned them of the, of the risk? And the Rebbe asks that. No, I'll, I'll do that. God told Moses and the people will believe in you. How then is it possible that Korah revolted against Moses? How is it possible that Korah and his ilk didn't believe that Moses was acting on God's command, especially considering the fact that 250 people were heads of the Sanhedrin and princes among the people? You know, these were not uh, just your regular rabble, you know, uh, power to the peasants type of thing. These were the heads of the court that Moses had uh, appointed and heads of the tribes. So they should have realized that yeah, this was the real deal, and they were seriously risking their lives. And we even see that today, you know, believing in the legitimacy of Moses's prophecy is a very big deal. And thousands of years later, we still believe in the Torah that Moses handed down to us as a prophet because of the promise from God regarding the revelation at Mount Sinai. So this just adds, you know, uh, adds to the question. You know, thousands of years after Moses' passing, we have this religion, Judaism, that's predicated on our trust of Moses' prophecy. But during his own lifetime, we had an entire group of educated spiritual people who doubted him. It, it just doesn't make any sense. And let's uh, go back to Rambam uh, to talk about this a little bit. Okay, you can do text. The Jews did not believe in Moses, our teacher, because of the wonders he performed. Whenever anyone's belief is based on wonders, the commitment of his heart has shortcomings because it is possible to perform a wonder through magic or sorcery. All the wonders performed by Moses in the desert were not intended to serve as proof of the legitimacy of his prophecy, but rather were performed for a purpose. What then is the source of our belief in him? The revelation at Mount Sinai, our eyes saw and not a stranger's, our hearts heard and not another's. There was fire, thunder, lightning. He entered the thick clouds. The voice spoke to him and we heard, Moses, Moses, go tell them the following. How is it known that the revelation at Mount Sinai alone is proof of the truth of Moses' prophecy that leaves no shortcoming? The verse states, behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people will hear me speaking to you so that they will believe in you forever. It appears that before this happened, they did not believe in him with a faith that would last forever, but rather with a faith that allowed for suspicions and doubts. 
Okay, so we've certainly piled on the questions and provided a lot of background so that those questions are, are really hard hitting. The key to answer the questions lies in a, a somewhat stranger story, which occurred about a thousand years from the time of Korah. Okay, so Rabbi Barbar Khanna said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, what is the meaning of the verse? The fear of God prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. The fear of God prolongs days is a reference to the first temple, which stood for 410 years and in which only 18 high priests served. But the years of the wicked will be shortened. This is a reference to the second temple, which stood for 420 years and in which over 300 high priests served. Now we could do a little math. We can deduct from that figure 40 years that Shimon HaTzadik, Simon the Righteous served, 80 years that Yochanan the high priest served, and 10 years that Ishmael ben Pavi served. And give the benefit of the doubt, some say that there were 11 years that Rabbi Eliezer ben Harsun served. These men were all righteous and were privileged to serve extended terms. Do the math, you know, deduct those years from that 420, and you can see that all of the remaining high priests did not complete a year in office. Remember, we did talk about uh, the high priest going in on uh, Yom Kippur and saying uh, the ineffable name of God. Um, and if something was wrong, if the priest was impure or what have you, um, he would perish in the Holy of Holies actually tied a rope around so that if he went in there and it's taken a little long, they would just pull him out and have to get another high priest. Now, why, you know, if these high priests were so unworthy of their position, how did they get the position to begin with as high priests? Well, very similar to what Korah may have thought about Moses giving the out cushy positions to those he favored. And in this case, it turns out that money can buy you the priesthood. So during the second temple period, in text A, it says the high priesthood was obtained with money. So you can purchase that. So it looks like, you know, from the, the previous text, that 300 people <laughs> bought their way into the high priesthood and perished. So again, what were they thinking? So Korok's not the only one with this, you know, strange sort of logic that, hey, you know, I want to be high priest. 
you know, and certainly, you know, if you're number 275 of those 300, uh, you'll have seen you know, during your lifetime, every year, the high priest would perish and they had to bring in another one, basically. Uh, you know, why were they suicidal? You know, this reminds me of the, the Darwin Awards. You know, the, 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 this, these are awards they're given out each year. Uh, they were developed back, I believe, in the 80s or something like that, you know, before the internet as, as we know it today in the Usenet uh, era. Uh, so the criterion of the awards states, in the spirit of Charles Darwin, the Darwin Awards commemorate individuals who protect our gene pool by making the ultimate sacrifice of their own lives. Darwin Award winners eliminate themselves in an extraordinarily idiotic manner, thereby improving our species chances of long-term survival. Now, I bet you that no one would have said, none of the other instructors around the world would have talked about Darwin here. <laughs> but I, I think it is quite applicable. <laughs> Yes, that was a very good find. Yeah. You knew about that? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Among scientific circles. Well, or computer nerd circles, too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They, they are announced on the, on the web oh, are they? every year. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they talk about the winners. Do I know any of the winners? Like, well, you wouldn't know, you would know them uh, posthumously, certainly, but <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> If at all, I mean, there, there are some who uh, there are some that are still living. You know, they uh, just managed. How could to, they be living? Yeah. They managed to sterilize themselves. Oh. Did something you know, idiotic to, to sterilize themselves. So you don't have to necessarily die, but most do. <laughs> so it, it is it worth it? You know. These people perhaps were not that crazy <laughs> or suicidal. What they did have was this tremendous desire to become so close to God and enter the Holy of Holies. You know, you can't do that unless you're the high priest. They wanted it so much that if they can only get the chance, even once, it was worth it for them. And uh, Rabbi talks about that in text nine. And you wanna do that one? The Talmud states with regard to the high priests in the second temple that are not a single one made it through the year for they died on Yom Kippur. Nonetheless, many jockeyed for the position, taking it with money. This is extremely puzzling. Seeing the previous high priest didn't make it through, coupled with an awareness of his own unworthiness, why would anyone push for the position? The explanation is this. These people possessed a tremendous desire to enter the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, where the Shekhini would be manifest, so much so that it was worth giving up their very lives. 
They knew they would die because of it, but the people were so desperate to have that spiritual high that came along with the experience that, that they were willing to die for. So you can go back and look at Korah and the 250 men in, in, in a similar day. Yeah, there was a movie, The Darwin Awards, 2007. Oh, okay. Starring Joseph Fiennes and Wayne Fiennes, okay. Oh, something to look on and see if you can find it on Netflix or whatever. Uh, so the Rebbe talks about that further. What was behind Korach's drive to be high priest? Rashi and the other Midrashim tell us that in response to his claim, Moses said, I too want this. In other words, the drive to be high priest is commendable and profound. Indeed, Korach's drive to be high priest was not simply to assume power over the Jewish people, rather inasmuch as the high priest is consecrated to the highest levels of sanctity, constantly standing in service before God, Korach and his ilk wanted so desperately to reach that level of holiness to assume the perch of high priest. As it says on the slide, Korach and the 250 men risked their lives away for a chance at more spirituality. And we have another quote here and next slide. And want to do that one. Authority in Judaism, namely a position of power that God bestows upon those who are worthy, does not flow from maternal ma material matters. Rather, is is an exclusive exclusively spiritual thing flowing from the shina, which is present over that person. Positions of power in Judaism are to further the fulfillment of Torah and mitzvah and to come closer to God. Elite status is indicative of abundant holiness. They wish to be imbued with this increased holiness and reach elite holy status. They were not malicious, rather. They had their souls in mind, namely the souls that should merit great closest to and heightened understanding of God. Yeah, the desire was admirable, but in the real world, as dictated by God, there can only be one high priest. And there can be only one Moses. You know, you can't have two kings sharing the same crown as the chosen slot. So now you can understand why the sages decided to make name this Parsha, this Torah portion after Korah because his intentions were noble. And in fact, we ought to emulate his intentions while making sure we don't emulate his actions. We should all strive to reach maximum levels of sanctity, just like Korach. Korach may have taken it too far, and we should indeed be careful not to replicate his mistake, 
but this core drive, this, this longing for heightened spirituality is a lesson we should keep. And back to the Rebbe on that. The reason why Jewish custom, which is itself Torah, is to name the Parsha Korach is now well understood. The message we ought to take from Korach's story is not only negative, namely don't be like Korach. Rather, there's a positive message here. What drove Korach, the 250 people with him, and even Moses is something we ought to emulate. So that's why we can have the title of the Parsha, the Torah portion, as being Korah. Again, as it says on the slide, you know, it's something we should all emulate, this passion for God. And, you know, to bring it back to ourselves personally, when you inject spiritual motivation in your life, it can elevate and refine your values. And there's a story told of uh, the Samaxetics uh, uh, study. His uh, grandson uh, stood outside the study. Uh, he's a boy of four or five years old, and he would later grow up to be the Rabbi Rashab. He was waiting for his private meeting to receive a blessing in honor of his birthday. As the door opened and the little boy walked in, he burst into tears. The Samaxetic lovingly calmed his grandson and asked him, why are you crying, my child? Trying to muffle his sobs, the boy confided in the Rebbe. Sadie cried, I just learned in Cheder that Hashem appeared to Abraham, our father. Why doesn't he appear to us too? Gentle, wise eyes gazed deeply into the child and comforted his burdened little heart. My dear grandson, explained the Samaxedic, when the 99-year-old Yid, a tzaddik, decides to circumcise himself, then he deserves to have Hashem appear to him. But out of the mouth of babes, you know, what did the, the boy want? He wanted... <laughs> nothing more than God to appear to him. While we may not be a young Rebbe, we can learn from this story to look at what we so desperately want. You know, what is it in your heart that you wish for so badly? You know, if someone stopped you, random moment of the day and said, what is it that you really want? What would you answer? So when you inject a spiritual drive in your life, even if you'll never be the next Moses or high priest, the drive alone will elevate your life and refine your values to live a truer, holier life existence more in sync with God. As it says, elevates and refines your values. And this is really epitomizes the Rebbe's approach to life. And approach to humanity, as it says on the slide. 
the Rebbe always saw that there was something positive in everything. He would look into a situation and always find that positive angle and use that as a lesson. For thousands of years, Korach was the Torah's classic villain. Uh, as they say here, a scoundrel derided in Jewish law and thought of as the archetype for, of greed, hunger for power, and demagoguery. Yeah, for centuries, Jews looked at the verse, do not be like Korach and his people, and took this lesson to heart. Korach was a bad guy, don't be like him. And certainly, you know, just uh, the surface reading and some of these uh, sages' interpretations uh, backed that up. Then along came the Rebbe. And the Rebbe basically single-handedly redeemed Korach. He refused to see Korach as, a, as you know, something, someone completely evil. And we've gone through some of the proofs argued in this lesson. It, it sort of underscores the Rebbe's approach to humanity and the world at large, as it says on the slide. There's something positive in everything. If God created it, then in some way it serves a purpose in, in good, a good purpose. Nothing's mistake. Nothing's random. Rather, it's there to further the goal of making this world a bit more godly. The Rebbe was able to mine this story and pull out this lesson of what should drive every Jew all on, even in an average Monday evening. Karak's no longer a one-dimensional bad guy. Rather, he's a, a personality whose spiritual drive is something for the ages. And that's the story. Questions or last minute comments? No. Okay. And we will. I don't think we did a good job though um, answering the question about why the Rebbe is still so powerful and bigger. Oh, well. Well, I don't think it was trying to answer that question in its totality. Okay. You're just trying to pull out a point that all these great sages cast disparity on, on Korok and all. Okay. So and this, this was one case where, again, he thought outside the box or mm -hmm. uh, what have you and uh, did, uh, you know, came up with a, a unique insight which added a lesson to it. You know, just like we study Torah, we, we study it 
over and over again every year. We go through the whole Torah, the whole five books of Moses, and we try to derive insight from it. We're not deriving necessarily the same insight Correct. each time, each year. Um, every time you go in, hopefully you can find another layer of meaning and application. And this was just one example. Okay. I'll have uh, these words up. Mm -hmm. Okay, next week, we have Chukah. And the title of the class is A Rational Mind is Great. It's also extremely limiting. Why logic alone is not enough. So hopefully everybody will have a good week, a good Shabbos, and uh, we will uh, uh, meet up again, God willing, next week. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Harfer Chabad and the Klein Jewish Academy. To learn more, visit harferchabad.org forward slash podcast.